When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This month on The Compliance Live, I visit with Wendy Badger, CCO at Tenant Company, on her fascinating journey to the CCO chair. The Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a chief compliance officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox and each month he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Everyone, this is Tom Fox back with another episode of The Compliance Life. This month, we are visiting with Wendy Badger. She is currently the CCO at Tenant Company, but we are on her journey to the CCO chair. So, Wendy, first of all, welcome back. Thank you. It's a great time to be here. So, Wendy, uh, we ended uh, episode one with a little teaser about you were going to move into uh, the law for what you've called the law firm years. So, I wondered if you might start there. What took you? to the law firm, and how was it different than um, being the more of the in-house type that you had been in the early part of your professional career? So I moved um, from in-house, being in-house counsel into private practice when I was about seven years into my career. Um, so I spent seven years in-house between two different companies and thought, you know, all of these different things and how I left it better at these other organizations, if I move into private practice, I can do this for a bunch of organizations at the same time rather than just one at a time thinking of having multiple clients. So that's what really kind of prompted me to move into what I call, as you mentioned, my, the law firm years. I was in private, private practice for about five years. Um, and did what I like to think is I did exactly that, where I helped a lot of organizations reframe and restructure their compliance programs, establish them from the ground up, or enhance what um, sort of foundations that they had in place. I also did a number of other uh, types of law and uh, that really kind of spoke to a little bit of my organizational structure and framework. Um, tendencies that I that I find enjoyable. So I worked on things like mergers and acquisitions and doing the, the due diligence of that. I did entity formations and, and structuring those and, and some transactional work. So I wasn't solely focused in compliance, but that was really where I think my heart was. And um, so work to build that part of practice at a firm that did not have that practice to begin with. And um, 
to be perfectly honest with you, Tom, I didn't love private practice. And I think there's there's a several reasons why, you know, some of them I realized right away and some of them I realized sort of after the fact and through some self-reflection and like what, where do I want to go? What do I want to be when I grow up type of thinking? And one of the reasons I didn't really love private practice was uh, just the pressure in terms of the marketing and new client generation. Like I wanted to roll up my sleeves and do the work and really get to know the clients well and understand their business and help them succeed. And part of that is certainly my introverted nature. Um, but also just, I think, part of my background with having done that in-house at both the Trade Association and the Accounts Receivable Management Firm. I think it you know, kind of spoke to both of those pieces. Um, and is maybe also one thing that I didn't quite anticipate about um, sort of the law firm life. Um, and, and so I didn't love the marketing aspect. You know, I, I, I didn't market myself the same way as most of the other people in that law firm. You know, I preferred to go out and make connections and give presentations and then make connections after you give the presentation and you start to speak with the folks in the audience as opposed to going golfing or, you know, some of the other more what you would think of as stereotypical or traditional types of law firm marketing. And the other can, thing that I found that can I that stop I, you there? Mm-hmm. Because there's a really significant point you made that I'd like to follow up on, which is that you can change, you can grow, you can make mm-hmm. realizations about yourself that your skill set may be best suited elsewhere, and it's no negative reflection on you. You talked about law firm marketing. Well, I was the exact opposite. I was Mr. Ticket. I had tickets mm-hmm. to everything. I wined and dined everybody. But don't ask me to make a presentation. There are places for both of those people, and Mm -hmm. what I really try when I teach at law schools is try to emphasize that if a place is not right for you, uh, think about why it's not right, and then maybe kind of reorient your search to some other uh, place where your skill set might be a a part of, and it seems to me that you are able to have that kind of self-reflection. I know you haven't gotten to the part where you leave, but uh, Mm -hmm. it really seems to me that you saw that even within the context of thinking maybe this is not for me, you were still able to carve out a way to do that business development. Uh, we haven't even gotten to the pressure of billing yet. I'm, I'm sure you're <laughs> going to talk about that. Uh, but, um, I mean, I think that's a really important point, and I don't think that's communicated enough, certainly in law school. How do you really communicate that to, to others that you might be mentoring or even those folks that you might talk to who are younger than both of us? So one of my favorite, I love that question, by the way, and I think it's so true that when oftentimes people look at it and think of themselves, and I know I went through this, and relatively recently, if you feel like you need to leave someplace because it's just not working, you feel like you failed. And I don't think that's true, and certainly not all of the time. And so when I was... um, In my last role prior to coming to tenant company, in my last role, one thing that I would always try and think about, certainly with my team and how I was approaching it with them, or to your point, other mentees that I may have had, even if I didn't know I was actually a mentor to them, which is maybe a whole separate uh, line of thought that we can go down later. But I always try and think of the fact that just because it isn't working or you're, you're not maybe cut out for that role doesn't mean you're failing it means maybe you need to change your environment. And so one of my favorite analogies, and and I do not have a green thumb, but it's a gardening analogy. When you plant a seed, 
first of all, you do not expect it to sprout up overnight. You need to properly nurture it. You need to give it sunlight. You need to give it water, maybe fertilizer. You need to enrich the environment for that seed to grow. If the seed doesn't grow, what do you do? Do you blame the seed? No, you change the environment in which the seed was planted. Maybe you're giving it too much sunlight. Maybe you're giving it too much water or not enough water or it's it's not going to grow. You weren't, I'm in Minnesota. You're not going to be able to really successfully grow too many tropical plants in Minnesota. So it that's what I kind of liken it to. Oftentimes when an employee or a mentee is feeling unsuccessful, it's because they're not in the right environment. They're not being properly nurtured and developed because what I need is maybe not what my team needs. And what I need from them, they may not be able to deliver because that's just not how they're wired. That's just not how they work. So I always try and think about, are they in the right environment? And how can I help them figure out what that environment is where they should be? You know, I I worked with a woman once who really wanted to go into a certain line of, of work. And I just kept thinking, that's not where she needs to be. That's not where she needs to be. That's not her talent set. She needs to be an auditor, right? Like she likes to dive in and find what's wrong and work to fix it and not point fingers and find the structure and test the control. That's an auditor. That's not someone who is, you know, in sales and product marketing, right? Like, so you need to find like, and how can I help others find what those strengths are without kind of doing the work for them. So that's kind of my analogy and and what I looked at for myself when I was in private practice, that I didn't feel like I was in the right environment to really help me bloom or blossom or continue to grow. Because I think the other part of of private practice um, that I didn't really love was um, that I would do all of this work for various clients. I'd help them draft policies and procedures, or I'd build some structure and framework, or I'd, you know, whatever project it was that I was doing with or for them. And I would hand it over and like walk away. I never really knew, did they take my advice? Did that work? Unless they came back and said, hey, we got sued. And I'd be like, okay, well, why did you get sued? well, we didn't actually take your advice. We didn't implement that policy or procedure. So that, to me, that was my signal that, okay, even though I liked the variety of the clients that I was working with, I didn't get to really roll up my sleeves and do the work and help them understand the strategy about why we were doing this and why it was important. And I also realized that, you know, as we often have, you know, government regulations that are written without real understanding of what it means to implement and what does that mean in a in practical terms. So I found that I could help organizations translate that and what it means to implement it what IT systems are going to be impacted. How is this going to impact, you know, how we're currently doing a certain process? Do there have to be changes? Do we just need better documentation? And what kind of data do we have to support any of this? That's where I really found that I could thrive. And that's when I made the decision about four and a half or so years into my private practice career that I need to go back in-house. And that's a very untraditional path. Folks typically will start 
in private practice and then create really great relationships with their clients and then kind of get recruited away. Whereas I took kind of an, an opposite approach and I started in-house, built a network through, and I think this is only because I started at an international trade association and had contacts and connections internationally. Um, who saw what I was doing on a real global scale to be able to say, now I can bring this, you know, to an, a member organization. So they were able to see that as opposed to starting in private practice and then going into um, a client's office and saying, hey, we, you could come on site with us and, and work with us. So it was very, you know, kind of as one of the things you mentioned, kind of this winding road. And so my career definitely has not been a straight ladder climbing up. It's much more of, as you describe, either a winding road or a jungle gym, because I've also found, you know, and we'll talk about this when we go into my next step when I moved out of private practice into a, a compliance officer role in, in a nonprofit organization, I may have had to take a step backwards onto a different ladder to be able to climb higher. And that is sometimes a realization that is really hard to make, especially if that step backwards comes with a pay cut. You need to be, your ego needs to be able to take that hit first and foremost. Um, and then you need to kind of begin with the end in mind. Like, where could this take me? Is this the smart move for me? So it was kind of between the time when I left um, the association or not the association, excuse me, the accounts receivable management firm and went into private practice that I really started to be a little bit more intentional about my career and have the loyalty to me while I was still leaving the organizations better than I found them. So that's when I kind of made the decision, I need to go back in-house and then ultimately ended up being recruited for my next role when I went in-house to, um, to a domestic nonprofit organization that specialized in federal student loans. So that's Let's when I made that transition. Let's talk about that role. Uh, how did you, you talk about being recruited? Could you say a few words about the recruitment process and then moving uh, to your next role? We're going to have a quick message and we'll be right back with more from Wendy Badger. I didn't really make it public that I was going to start looking for a role. And so I think this is a piece of, you know, I'd often been told when you're looking for a job, it's not about what you know, it's who you know. And there's some truth to that. But I think more than that, it's not about what you know. It's not about who you know. It's about who knows you. Who is going to speak your name in the room when somebody says, gosh, we really need someone to come in and pull our compliance department together. We need to start focusing on that. Who is who is in that room that knows your name is, and is going to say, you know what, Wendy Badger has done that before repeatedly and well, and kind of be that advocate or sponsor for you. And sometimes you don't even know that that's happening. And that's a big piece of what happened when I ended up getting recruited for my role when I went back in-house. In fact, um, the recruiter did a search on LinkedIn for a couple of different key terms that they were looking for in that niche industry. And my profile happened to be the one that popped up on top and they reached out to me that way. And then once we kind of started our communication, like, hey, would you be interested? I've got this role. Would you or anyone you know be interested? They started reaching out to other people in my network and asking people in my network. Um, some of them I knew they were reaching out to, some of them I did not. Um, 
but saying, you know, what do you know about this Wendy Badger person? And, you know, um, would be, would she be a good fit in this type of role? And so in terms of leaving it better than you found it, um, I, it's nice to know what those folks are going to say about you and not just on a formal LinkedIn recommendation. So I moved into, ultimately was successful in getting that role and moved into what was initially a director of corporate compliance role. And I think when I joined the organization, I think they really wanted someone at a vice president slash chief compliance officer role. Maybe not, it wasn't a C-suite type level, but it had that title, which kind of gave some additional authority, not just influence, which matters when you're trying to build a program from scratch. Um, And ultimately after I sort of felt like I was proving myself for the first couple of years, and then two years into that role, I was promoted to vice president and chief compliance officer. And I think that was a large part of them seeing that I knew what I was doing. I had a plan. I was building structure and framework that was going to outlast me, that it wasn't about me, that it was about making that organization better and in line with their values. You know, what did they consider important? Was it integrity and excellence and service and wellness and, you know, whatever that organization's values are, I made sure to tie all my initiatives to those values, which made the program that much more sustainable and showed that um, I was doing what that organization needed. And I think that's ultimately what helped me get promoted. It didn't happen quickly. I was there for almost eight years at that organization. um, And, uh, Many of the programs took a long time to build as you're building that trust. You know, you come in as a new person to the organization, to people who'd been with that company for 20 plus years. And they're thinking, who is this new kid? And what is she going to tell me that I don't already know about this industry? So I wasn't there to tell them about the industry. I was about, I was there to tell them how through structure and framework and process, we can make this even better. Your job is going to be easier if we implement these things. And I think ultimately we found that to be true. The other thing that I I believe I brought to that organization, in addition to revamping um, their entire ethics program, never mind the compliance program, but their ethics hotline and that whole framework, revamping that, um, I, I think that the other thing that I brought to them was who should be at this table. And what I did through that was helped kind of open their mindset to who should we be talking to about these new processes and programs? Who is this going to impact? And that started from our policy management framework. Like, who should we be talking to? If I implement a new policy, how is this going to impact the operations folks? Because it could be theoretically perfect, but it's practically flawed because the operations folks, it doesn't work for them. So bringing those people to the table saying, we want to implement this new policy. Here's what we're thinking. How would this impact you? So we created sort of this policy review council who were not the policy approvers, but were really the ones to say, this is how it's going to impact us in this particular department. And we made sure to have that representation. And then it was a separate group of policy approvers who then didn't end up getting mired down in the wordsmithing, and, but weren't also a rubber stamp. And that, that brought them to start thinking about from a broader perspective, who else's voice do we not have at this table? You know, so it started with the different departments, but then it had expanded into whose other voice isn't represented here. And that started to, to build a, a diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative because they started to really think about, we need other voices. How is this impacting other folks? So it was really amazing to kind of see that develop and grow. But it, as I mentioned, it didn't happen quickly. It wasn't immediately successful either. 
um, you know, it sort of started with the developers and the approvers of the policy being all the same people and getting mired down in a three hour long policy wordsmithing meeting where I was like, okay, this isn't working, right? So you had those trials, you had those failures, um, but that's a piece of how I think I ultimately was able to leave that organization knowing I left it better than I found it because of some of those things that had much broader impact that I even think I realized when I initially brought um, some of that to the organization to just see it take on a life of its own. And that was pretty cool. Wendy, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I hope our listeners will join us uh, for part three and our next episode where we look at some of your next step. I look forward to continuing the conversation. Me too. Thank you, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Compliance Life. I hope you'll join me again next week where I take up another episode in The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, Any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.